Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy to us, your blessings. Thank you for the chance we have to talk more deeply about your word, and please just continue to um, refresh our hearts with your grace and your love. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So we spent some time yesterday talking about the personality of the prophets. We read through a variety of the different prophetic things. I think one of the main things there is that they are they're close partners with God. They experience what he experiences, and so they have the same emotions as he does and the same struggles and, and difficulties as he does. Um, we spent time talking about God's original plan, which was for Israel to bless the world so that prophets were not really something that God planned. They, they were something that came about later when he needed to warn his people and to warn other people of um, their sin and the judgment that was going to come if they didn't obey. So these prophets were clustered right before um, Israel fell, the, the northern kingdom, and then right again before Judah fell. So they were not a large period of time. It's actually a very small period of time. Um, their focus, the ones we're focusing on, was a more local, national focus. But through that, they also saw application of what they were talking about to the Messiah to come, and then also to the end of time. So, But they were looking at that through the lens of their time and what they hoped would happen. We talked about what poetry is like and how it's difficult. Um, all prophets are in poetry, and I think it's one of the reasons people don't read it, because they get lost and confused in, in trying to understand it. Um, it's difficult in English as well, so we understand that. Um, but a little bit of how to read it. And then the themes of the, of the different prophets, um, there's a lot more, but these are some of my favorite ones that help me understand best who the prophets are. And then we went through Jonah and Hosea. So that was kind of our thing. So now we're going to go through actually six today, um, I think. Is that what I have on there? Six, yes. Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Obadiah, and Habakkuk. And then tomorrow we'll finish up the last ones. So, um, I can't count either. I said five, so, you know, but it's actually six. So <laughs> I put Nahum and Obadiah together because they are speaking similarly about similar things, and they're short, and it would be easier for us to deal with them together. So, um, I want to again just say the, the, um, this is my favorite, favorite stuff to talk about. As I was reviewing these ones again that I'm doing today, this morning, just being reminded of the immense privilege of talking about God's word and feeling inadequate. I, I feel that every time I talk about the prophets, I think because they're so, they just, they, they speak God's heart. And it's, I never feel like I say it well. <laughs> so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in prayer this morning and just, so I would ask for you to pray with me again now as we go into these, because I think, um, it's talking, it's, it's sharing the hope of the gospel, but also God's love and hope for everyone in this world, not just his chosen people. And I think um, my, my words are inadequate, but God is faithful and he can speak in spite of that. So let's pray again. Lord, your word is rich and deep and we're just scratching the surface. Lord, I ask your presence again here now with us as we... Very briefly, but um, hopefully 
powerfully dig into your word. Lord, please speak through your word. Speak through your prophets again to us today because you do speak through them. It wasn't just to Israel. We are Israel too, through you, through your sacrifice. Please help us to hear their message and your message to us. Thank you. Amen. I'm going to shut this door. Okay, so let's go to Amos. We spent a little bit of time when we were reviewing the characteristics of the prophets um, in Amos, but I want to go back there now that we are kind of focusing on him. He was, again, this prophet at the beginning, that first cluster, right before the northern kingdom fell. So right before Israel fell, he was speaking to the people, and he starts off with this list of nations, and that's actually B-I there in your thing, but seven nations. So he goes through these seven nations, and if you look at the beginning of Amos, he starts, he says, the Lord roars from Zion, and then he starts this listing of nations. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And then he lists these transgressions. Then he goes on to Gaza, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away punishment. And then he lists the transgressions of Gaza. So you think, is he really talking to Israel? What's he doing? Um, but he's actually zeroing in. So he's doing this target thing. So he starts with... Damascus. Where's Damascus in relationship to Israel? North, okay. What's the next one? Gaza, where is that? Still have the Gaza Strip today, right? West, okay. So he's going north, then west. Where's next? Edom. Where's Edom? East, okay. North, west, east. He's honing in. Then he goes to Ammon, which is again kind of east, a little bit north, more north than Edom is. Um, but these are relatives. So he starts off with far people away, Damascus, Gaza. Then he's narrowing in. Edom is, Edom comes from who? Esau, right? So relative. Then Ammon and Moab, who are who? Lots of children, right? Through incest with his daughters. So closer and closer to home. And then finally in two verse four, who does he go to? Judah, Judah, right? So and this is the seventh nation. So he's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Israel's like, hallelujah. He skipped us, right? He's only talking about Judah. Seventh nation, perfect number. But then he doesn't stop there. What does he do? He finally gets to Israel. So it's this sneaky way of getting to them. They think they're off the hook. And he says, no, actually, you're the ones I really want to focus on. So he hones in on Israel and he tells them, that they have been completely unjust and terrible. So let's read what he says to them at the very beginning here in 2 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. They sell the righteous for silver, the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. These are God's people. These are not, this is like the worst stuff, and this is what God's people are doing. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. 
etc., etc., etc. I was the one who blessed you, and you've turned and turned my blessings on their heads, thank you, and instead have become utterly the opposite of what I'm wanting you to be. But God is gracious, and he doesn't stop there, and he says <sighs> he wants restoration with them. He doesn't leave them there. So in 5, in chapter 5, verse 4, if you remember yesterday, we read his ironic statement in chapter 4, which says, come to Bethel and transgress, right? They're supposed to come to Bethel and worship, and he says, what you're doing is you're coming to Bethel and you're sinning. So instead, now he's giving God's this clincher in the very middle of the book. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, 5 verse 4, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. You're seeking the wrong thing when you're seeking these forms of worship and just doing things for the wrong reasons. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. This is 5, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the Pleiades. And Orion, he turns the shadow of death into mourning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Will you please seek me? Will you please give me your heart? This is what I long for. He doesn't want to bring destruction. Even though this is right before he's about to destroy them, God is pleading for their hearts. He's longing for them to turn back to him. The people hated Amos. We've already read from Amos 5, the next few verses, they talk about they hate their hatred for him, their um, mockery of him, their desire for him to um, stop speaking. But he continues anyway. And the very last chapter is what I'd like to focus on now, chapter 9. And this is a powerful chapter. This is quoted, you'll recognize a verse of this, from Acts 15. Do you remember what happened in Acts 15? Okay, church council over the circumcision. What were the people saying? <coughs> the Gentiles had to be Okay, the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to become part of the Christian church, right? So what what were the reasons that they ended up saying they don't need to be? Okay, God put no difference between them. Well, circumcision is nothing. It basically is what he said because it was really supposed to be circumcision of the heart and it was representative. Okay. Good. But they also, so they did all that, but what did they found it on? Did they just... They said it would be too hard for them. They wouldn't be able to do it. And they said, after all, they're going to synagogue and they'll continue to learn. Okay, I'm, I'm not asking the right question. You're answering good things, but they, they, they made those reasons. But why? What was the foundational reason? They quoted actually from Amos 9. Is that what you were going to say? James said, to this agree the words of the prophets. Yes, they went back. They didn't just say, in fact, I wish we had time to go into that. I think they actually went back to Leviticus. Because actually the, the requirements that they give the, the Gentiles are the same requirements that are given to the Gentiles in Leviticus 17, 18, and 19 that are supposed to apply to everyone. So they were not just coming up with these off the top of their head. They were saying, no, we've known from the very beginning. Even the Gentiles who read this in the synagogues know what they're supposed to do. Circumcision is not among those. So they went back to the Torah and then they said, see, the prophets agree with this too. 
So they were founding what they believed on the Old Testament. That I, I like to call it the First Testament. I know no one does that, but it's it's God's word too. And if we didn't have that, was this was their Bible. So my my um, concern is is that we are also able to found what we believe on what they did. Of course, the New Testament gives us additional insights, but if we can't get what they did out of there, we're in trouble because I don't believe they were reading back in. I believe that they recognized who Jesus was based on Scripture itself, and they went back there. So um, what do we see here in Amos 9 that James quoted? He starts off, we'll start in verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? What? Like Ethiopia? What does that have to do with anything? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? You're not, you're not special. I mean, you are special because I love you. I love everyone, but I love everyone. I've done the same thing for them. Israel was a, a um, paradigm through which we are to see God's love and care for all the world and his blessings for all people. Just everyone else, well, they turned away from him too. But God rescued other nations and blessed other nations as well. He goes on, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. We're God's special people. Nothing will happen to us. And he says, no, (laughs) you're just as accountable. Just as I have brought other people out of slavery and bondage and held them accountable, I'm also holding you accountable. On that day, and this is a, a significant phrase for referring to the time of the end. So again, it can refer to, if you remember, the prophets, especially the classical prophets, are referring to the time of the end, starting with, really, with the Messiah. So the day of the Lord, we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's it's got three phases, just like a lot of other things here, three three aspects of fulfillment. It's when God comes again. So Hebrews reiterates this. The last days start with Jesus. Coming of the Messiah starts the time of the end. But, of course, there's a final, final time of the end. So they're seeing this kind of three focuses. So, and on that day, I will raise up the booth, the tabernacle of David. And this is the same word that's used for the Feast of Tabernacles that they would celebrate. It's the same word that's used for Jesus. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. So it's this booth that's coming, this tabernacle that's coming. It's always meant to point to the Messiah. And then, of course, in heaven, we'll have this final Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll be celebrating together with God. We're actually kind of doing one now, too. Ellen White compares camp meetings to Feast of Tabernacles, which is kind of cool. So, happy Feast of Tabernacles. (laughs) Anyway, um, so the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and prepare its damages, I will raise up its ruins, I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the who? Gentiles who are Called called by my name. Okay, there's a problem here, right? How can Gentiles be called by God's name? If you're called by God's name, what are you supposed to do? Become a Jew, right? Get circumcised. Start doing all the normal things that an ethnic Jew would do. And Amos here is saying, I think this is why James quotes this. There's many other passages. We'll look at a couple of them. But where the prophets are clear and they're saying, no, there's going to be a time 
when there will be Gentiles who are followers of God. And they're not going to become Jews. They're also going to be called by my name. That's us. He's talking about us, right? So God, the days are coming. He says, another phrase that signifies the time of the end. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hill shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. No longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. So most of it, again, is talking in this lens of ethnic Israel, ethnic national Israel. But he sticks in there. No, that's not everyone. God is also concerned and caring about every single one of his people. Let's read one other example of that. Isaiah 19. No, we're not doing Isaiah, but Isaiah spends a lot of time on discussing other nations. You remember, I'm sure, that God's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay, that's in Isaiah as well. The end of Isaiah. This is the beginning. It's a passage we don't often read. So Isaiah 19, starting in verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Egypt. What? I mean, Egypt was where they came out of slavery. But there's actually a lot of indication in the Bible that Egypt is also a place of refuge. We talked about that a little bit yesterday with Hosea. Um, a pillar to the Lord at its border, and it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. He will send them a savior and a mighty one. So this is Egypt, out of whom God sent a savior for Israel. Now God's going to save them too. He will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt. These are, this is covenant language. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering as they will make a vow to perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. So this is, this is not an unusual thing. We think, well, maybe a James was just quoting this one verse out of Amos, but it's everywhere in the prophets. We don't have time to look into a lot more of them, but you at least get the idea. I've written down some other passages there that you can look at. This kind of worldwide perspective of... God's salvific power. His point of, of working through Israel was not just to save Israel. It was to save the world. But since Israel wasn't faithful, he had to use all sorts of other means to try to get to the world. Um, all right, we got to move on to Micah. We're going to fly, but we all make it. So Micah, since we just, it's actually a good one to do next. We just read from Isaiah. Micah was during the time of Isaiah. He actually probably knew Isaiah. They, act, they have several passages that are the same, almost identical. So if you, you can read passages in Micah that are the same in Isaiah, there's debate back and forth among scholars. Who wrote which one? We don't know. Maybe one of them wrote it and the other one copied, or they both wrote it together. I have no idea. But anyway, they, they have similar themes and similar ideas. Um, he also was rejected by the people. Um, look at Micah 2, starting in verse 6. Do not prattle you say to those who prophesy. So again, he's speaking about himself here. So they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men return from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant homes, from their children you've taken away my glory forever. 
Arise and depart. This is not your rest. It is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. So he's saying you would prefer someone who lies to you than the truth, someone who's following God. And that is indeed what they were doing at that time. The kings, as you probably know, were hiring prophets to say what they wanted to say. Lots of them. So there might be one or two true prophets, and they were hiring all these false prophets to say whatever they wanted them to say. The people were a mess, and God speaks against them this covenant lawsuit. And we haven't spoken a lot about covenant lawsuits yet. I mentioned at the very beginning. But really, a covenant lawsuit is a, it's a legal case against someone, okay? So a covenant was many things, actually. Um, it was a legal binding document. It was also a treaty, often, between two groups of people. It was also often the covenants that God wrote with his people were um, for the saved. So it wasn't, in fact, they're modeled after the Hittite treaties, which were some of the few ones at that time where it was not saying, you do these things and then I'll save you. It was the opposite way around. God's covenants were always, I've saved you, hallelujah! And now here are the things that you're gonna just do because you, you love me. So it's, it's the opposite of what we usually think about covenant, what we usually think about um, people. But if you actually go, I encourage you, go back and read the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, if you haven't done that in a while. And you'll be, you will actually, I think, want to go and read the rest of the laws in the book. Because it's really not a book of law. It's a book of covenant. It's a book of love. It's a book of God saying, I want your heart. And I'm, I, your heart comes first. And only out of that flows um, the commandments. So Jesus, I think, was actually not saying anything new. He was saying what he'd been saying already to them. They'd just forgotten and got it mixed up, got it wrong. So um, God has always wanted our hearts. And so this is a covenant lawsuit. God is not coming to them wanting to destroy them. In fact, most of the times this word is used in the Old Testament, it is God making a covenant lawsuit for his people. So he's saving them. He's rescuing them. He's making a case for them against their enemies. But when they are unfaithful, his last resort is to say, I've got to take you to court. You don't care anymore. So I need to show you what's, what's been happening. So the first thing he does, if you look in Micah 6, is he has witnesses. And when there's no faithful people, who does he have to turn to? The mountains, nature, right? There's no one faithful. Often he'll call to the other nations sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't even have that. So he's like, all right, nature's my only hope. Hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. The Lord has a complaint. That's the word for covenant lawsuit. It's reeve there in Hebrew, against his people, and he will reeve, he will contend with his people. So it's the, the word contend I don't think is a good word. It's make a case again. He, he's, 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 this is his last hope. He doesn't want to take them to court, but he doesn't have an option. Again, God... Like we've seen already in all of these cases, God is doing everything he can first, and this is his last resort before the people are going to go completely away from him. He's trying to wake them up. What does he do next? He tells them his provisions. So he doesn't come and say, you horrible people, zap. He doesn't do that, right? He says, look what I've done for you. 
I want you to know my heart. Look at what I have done. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Verse 3. How have I wearied you? Testify against me. What have I done? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. God is saying, I've done everything for you, and you don't care. What recourse do I have left? And he continues in 9 through 12 to go through all of the sins that they do. Wickedness, short measures, deceit, violence, lies, and then the punishments that are going to come. And this is where I think we often get mixed up also with the prophets, is we read these horrible things that God is going to do to people, right? The plagues, the wild beasts, the famine, the pestilence. But these are covenant curses. If you, if you were steeped in Deuteronomy, the Torah, you'd be recognizing that. You'd be like, oh my goodness, this means we've broken the covenant. So God is not just arbitrarily choosing these horrible things and like, these people are horrible, I'm going to kill them. No, he's saying, look, this is the result of what you've done. You knew. I warned you. I told you. I told you these things were going to happen. So this, was, this is not some surprise. In fact, all of it, all the way through, if you go through, look at it a concordance sometime for fun. Go through and look at the, the, the punishments that God brings. They're covenant curses. The people knew exactly what they were doing. This was not a surprise to them. So this is verses um, 13 to 16. These are all straight from Deuteronomy, covenant curses. Striking, desolate, hunger, um, sword, sowing but not reaping. The, the crazy thing that happens and I wish we had time to do some of the major prophets too, but it's so amazing to me. This blows my mind. I just have to tell you because it's so cool. So in Isaiah, God does the same thing. In fact, he starts with a covenant lawsuit in Isaiah. And he goes through this entire thing. The whole book is basically a covenant lawsuit against them. Um, but the key is he brings in all these covenant curses in chapter 1. But then what happens in chapter 53? You know Isaiah 53. This is the, probably one of the most powerful gospel passages. What happens there is that the Messiah takes all the covenant curses for them. So it's these same words that are from Deuteronomy. You can find them all in Deuteronomy. Then you see them all in Isaiah 1. And then they're all in Isaiah 53. It's God is saying, I don't want you to have to have these. And you don't have to if you would just believe in me. Yes, the nation will be destroyed. But you as an individual, please accept my taking of the curses for you. I'm doing it for you. Please. And I think this is always God's heart because what does he say? Six through eight, and then we'll go into seven right after that because God doesn't leave it saying, all right, you've done bad. Here are the consequences. There's always a way out. There's always redemption. There's always grace if you're willing to accept it. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for sin, but there's always grace. God is a redemptive God. So he says in verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Do I need to do all these things to be saved? <laughs> probably Micah, but it's probably, I mean, Micah's writing this down, but it's speaking as if God is saying what the people are going to be saying. So it's... He says there in verse 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city. Yes. And then the rest starts in Yes, the prophets, again, poetry is crazy, 
because you alternate back and forth between speakers and they don't tell you. So there's a lot of other markers that aren't there too. There's no definite article markers in poetry. You don't know whether it's the or a. You have to know by context. There's no um, direct object markers. So nouns that are direct objects can come at the end of a sentence, the beginning of a sentence, the subjects. So it's, it's written to make the meter flow and the repetition and parallelism flow. So it's not always clear. Sometimes, yes, in fact, as we go further towards the post-exilic prophets that come after the exile, they're much more clear. They keep saying, they say over and over, this says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, because people weren't caring to listen to the prophets anymore, so they were making sure and they dated everything. But beforehand, they didn't really do that. So it's, it's confusing. It can be very confusing. But often, they write in this way, as if it is God saying it, and yet it's them saying it, and they'll alternate back and forth. So I think... I think this six through eight is actually a, um, a hypothetical conversation between what someone is asking what they should do and then God's response or Micah's response through God. So with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? So this is right after God has said everything that, they're, that he's done for them. And they're saying hypothetically, right? I've done all this stuff. Do you not care? And he says, you know, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil shall get my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God? So he sets forth this standard and he says, you haven't done it at all. You've done nothing. But God doesn't leave them there. This is what I love about this. It's so cool. So what does he do? He goes on into chapter 7. We read part of chapter 7 yesterday when we were talking about the connection with, between Micah and God. Um, but when Micah says this in chapter 7, verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me, do not rejoice over me, my enemy, when I fall I will arise, when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, for I have sinned against him, until he pleads my case. This is Reeve, this is the covenant lawsuit. So he flips it on its head. And once again, he's saying, if you are willing, God will plead your case. I think he's getting this, and he and Isaiah are saying basically the same thing. Yes, you deserve death. You deserve punishment. You deserve these covenant curses. But God, in his grace and mercy, is saying, if you accept me, I'm going to plead your case for you, because I'm going to take it on myself. And then he ends with this very famous passage, which you know really well, in the end of 7, who is a God like you? This is Micah's name. Micah means who is like God. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. And I wish you could see this in the Hebrew. This, the word for forgiveness in Hebrew is not pardon or let go of. It's bear on yourself. So when God says he pardons iniquity, he's bearing it on himself, on his own shoulders. He's not just saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter. No, it's infinitely costly, this forgiveness. It cost his life, his death. Passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This is again straight out of Exodus 34, just like Jonah was quoting. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. It's not our job to subdue our iniquities. We try and it's like a whack-a-mole game. You're working on this one? You get that taken care of, and there's all these others popping up behind you, and then, oh my goodness, i got to go over here, and you just, it's a hopeless case. But if we're looking to him, he promises to do that for us. Amen. 
you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I find this really significant. God could go dig them up, right? Are they gone? They're in the depths of the sea. He could go down there. I think this is, this is where we get mixed up with, with worldly conceptions of forgiveness. We tend to think it's not condemning the sin. Like, oh, if we, give, if we forgive someone, we're just like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter what they did. No! Forgiveness is infinitely costly. You bear the, the penalty for that person. And then we tend to say, well, it's gone. You forget it. Does God forget it? No. Actually, he never says he forgets. He says he chooses not to remember, which I think is very different. Forgiveness, he's not saying they're gone. He's saying, I paid the price for them. They're at the depths of the sea. I could go dredge them up, but I'm choosing not to. because I have borne them on myself. In the very center of the book of Micah is this messianic, this amazing messianic passage. Micah 5. And I think this is the key to what's happening here in the rest of the book. So why do they have this hope? Why can they trust in God to remove their, their iniquities and to um, make a case for them instead of against them is because of the Messiah who is to come. So starting in 5 verse 2, you know this probably well. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me. Who's talking? God, okay, good. But then <laughs> the one to be ruler in Israel. Who is that? Okay, so, but it's God, right? So this ruler is going to be God. Who, because what is, how does it describe him? Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Okay, this is the same descriptions as is given in Isaiah 7 to 11, the book of Emmanuel. So all the prophecies about the Messiah there, Micah is quoting these. So Micah, I think, is this shortened synopsis of the whole book of Isaiah, actually, just in pithy form. But... Yeah, I mean, he does some different focuses too, but yes, he, there's so many connections with Isaiah, having a lot of the same connections. So, it's here we're starting to get, someone asked me a question about, can, could they know that this Messiah was to be divine? And I believe that you will see that, especially after tomorrow when we finish up going through Zechariah and Malachi. I think it makes it even more clear, but here is beginning of it. So, come forth to me, and yet, there's me, and yet there's another one who's also God. How do you understand this, right? And then he goes on, therefore he shall give them up. Who's he? It's not clear, actually, here, because notice this is someone else talking now. So who's the he? It's actually really uncertain. Is this God? I think it's actually God, the Father, here, because he goes on saying, until the time that she who is in labor has, been, has given birth. So this, I believe, is also a reference back. It's got a lot of the same language as um, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, where it talks about the virgin conceiving, bearing a child. We don't have to go, time to go into all of that. But then the remnant of his brethren, who is that now? Okay, we are the remnant, but who's the he, his brethren? Probably the Messiah here, right? So, shall return to the children of Israel, and he... Probably Messiah again here. Shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Are you lost and confused yet? Right? So it goes back and forth. Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it Jesus? It's both and all. I think Ash had it right when he said, I will not ask. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually some of my favorite stuff. Yes, go ahead. Them in the first line. 
Therefore, he shall give them up. He shall give them up. I think he's talking about Israel. So he's sending Israel into exile. And then he's bringing them back into exile, back from exile before the Messiah comes. So he's actually giving a timeline here in very shortened form of what's going to happen. Um, so he shall stand and feed his flock. Again, a lot of language from Isaiah 7 through 11 of the, me the messianic figure there. In the strength of Yahweh and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. So this person is God, and yet he's also doing everything for God and with God. So you have a lot of just cool stuff here. I wish we had time to dig into it deeper, but it's a lot of fun. Um, and it finally ends with, and this one shall be peace. So not only does he bring peace, he is peace. He is peace in and of himself. Hmm? One supply, so and this shall be peace. And this shall be peace, yes. But it, this can refer to either, and I think it's probably ambiguous here, which I'm fine with it saying one, because this can be referring to a thing or a person in Hebrew. So it can, it's probably referring to both. He will bring peace and he will be peace. Yes. Similar to when Jesus says, it is finished, he's quoting from the end of Psalm 22, which says, this will be done. So, and he's actually quoting that same words. It's just translated differently, unfortunately. Um, so this amazing picture here of these connections with Isaiah, this picture of who the Messiah is. And I think it's very interesting that this passage is also again quoted in Matthew. And of course, many people are trying to say this, this cannot refer to the Messiah, but I think usually it, they're not reading again the context and seeing the flow of the passage here and what's happening what, like what we just did. So I encourage you, don't be discouraged by reading about um, people who are wanting to do away with Matthew especially. I think the reason they get on Matthew is because Matthew was writing to the Jews and he was writing to people that, that knew all this stuff. They knew the Torah. They, most of them knew it by heart. Most of them knew the whole Old Testament by heart. Um, and so he didn't have to give them ma massive majority of context. So we look at it today and we're like, what? He's reading it all wrong, but he's He's reading the whole context of the Old Testament. And we're just missing that because we don't know it. So we often assume that Matthew is not doing good exegesis when I actually think he's doing better exegesis than we usually do because he know, he's seeing the whole of Scripture, not just parts of it. All right, Zephaniah. So Zephaniah, Nahum, they're writing, and Habakkuk are writing now to Judah. So we've passed the point of no return for Israel. They are in exile. They've been taken into exile by Assyria. They are done and gone and over. Um, and now Judah is in the same trouble. So unfortunately, they did not learn um, from their neighbors and they, their relatives, and they end up doing the same stuff. So Zephaniah writes during the time of Hezekiah um, and Josiah. So he's writing probably before and after the worst time in Israel's history, or in Judah's history, which was the time of Manasseh. So if you remember, he was one of the longest-lived kings, and he did some of the worst stuff. And of course, he's Hezekiah's son, interestingly born after Hezekiah asked for more time to live, which always makes me wonder, you know, maybe we just need to trust God with when we go, you know, not that, not that he wants any of us to die, but, but that sometimes, anyway, I'll just leave it there. But <laughs> Manasseh was horrible. Of course, he repents at the end of his life, but it's not enough to bring the nation back. 
So even after Josiah's reforms, they're still just not complete turning back to God, and they, they just go down towards oblivion. Um, without God's grace, they would be totally done for. So at this time, they are worshiping every false god imaginable. So if you read, look, to, look with me at 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. I will stretch up my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Who is Baal? Okay, he was a fertility god of all of the Canaanite nations around them. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heavens on the housetops. Who are those? Um, these were some of the Zoroastrianism religions, so the hosts of heaven, this kind of this mystical stuff. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. So yet another false god of the nations around them. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. And Milcom was the one that wanted child sacrifices. So these are the people who, are they are, who they are worshiping. And so what does he say? Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of Yahweh is at hand. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. So he's saying God is coming. And I think the day of the Lord has become... I don't know. I hear it most often talked about badly. Like, <gasps> be scared. Judgment time. The day of the Lord is coming. And, you know, that is what is the main focus of a, of a lot of the prophets. Why, though? Why is, why is that a focus? Based on everything we've talked about, why is the focus of God's coming on judgment? Because they were doing the wrong Yes, because they weren't following him. Yes. He had this redemptive purpose. But his coming... The day of the Lord is simply Yahweh himself. That's really all it is. It's not a mystery. It's not this time of craziness or when God wants to just destroy people. It's just God coming. It has different manifestations. So the day of the Lord is, is when the Messiah comes. The first time and the second time. That's also called the day of the Lord. So it's, it's just in general, God coming. And if you're with God... Hallelujah! It's a wonderful day. And you're so happy. And we'll read about that at the end of Zephaniah in a moment. But if you're not with God, or you don't care, then it is a scary thing. But not because God is scary. God wants their hearts. He wants them. He, again, he's saying this stuff so strongly because it's a last-ditch effort to get through to them. He hasn't done this. He's given them 400 years of probation and they haven't cared at all. He's been working with them gently, speaking kindly. They don't listen. So now he's doing everything he can to get their attention. So that's the first. All right, that's interesting one. that that verse starts with be silent before mm -hmm. the God. Because yes. there is so much confusion and all kinds of things uh, when they are sacrificing to the other gods and all that. Yes. Be silent. Yes, and they're trying to excuse themselves, right? See, you know, we, we're, we're doing all the right things. We're still going to the temple and worshiping. And God's like, just, just chill. Just let me speak. Let me come, right? Be glad for my coming rather than running away. So it's this divine human collision that I have there, this theophany. That means God vision. Okay, so theo, God, like theology, study of God. Phanos is, means vision, seeing. So it's simply seeing God. That's what it is. And I'm a recovering legalist. I, I, I grew up with parents who 
who very much shared with me about salvation by faith and grace, but I couldn't believe it for my own self. I, I taught, I was, I've been a youth leader for many years, and I taught it to my kids and kids in youth group. I don't have kids of my own, but, um, and, but I, I didn't believe it. Believe it in my heart that God would really love me until I had some very um, painful, horrible things happen to me in the last, well, about five, six years ago. And that, it, it broke me. And that's what God needed to use to get through to me, to show me that he loved me. Before that, I was scared of the judgment. I would talk about it, you know, like, but I'm just freaking out. I remember thinking, I mean, God's going to look at my name today, and I'm not, I haven't spent enough time with him. And I, you know, I, I, on the outside, I looked perfect. I was doing everything right. My life was all together. But inside, I was a mess. But I've, I've been amazed to, to see what God has been doing in me as he's been teaching me about his grace. And I'm, I'm, I can't wait for him to come and see him face to face, you know, and it changes you when you get get who God is. And so it's become a great burden on my heart to, to turn upside down our usual picture of God and our usual picture of the judgment because I think we've gotten it all wrong. Not intentionally, right? I mean, the Jews during Jesus' time, most of them were not intentionally doing things wrong either. But they mixed, completely mixed up who Jesus was and what he was about and that he wanted their hearts. So that's really what I think is key here, is this is God himself coming. And then he's coming to show his sovereignty over the whole world. This, again, is not just about Israel. 3 verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations. I'm not just caring about you. I care about everyone. If they will listen. To pour on them my indignation, my fierce anger, and all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my Jealousy, not his anger, his jealousy for them, for their hearts. He doesn't want them to turn away because he goes on, I will restore to the peoples, the nations, a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord. This is his longing to serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. This is everyone. Again, just like Amos, Zephaniah is saying, God cares about everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. And I think I have that under um, 3, 9 to 13. So even the nations are involved there. So God is wanting this restoration, this salvation for everyone, not just his covenant people. Well, he makes a covenant with everyone if they're willing. So this day of covenant implication, if you go back now to Zephaniah 1, Starting in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, of trouble and distress, of devastation and desolation. These are all covenant curse words again. Darkness and gloominess, clouds and thick darkness. And then he's moving into Sinai words. So he's mixing in words of covenant um, curses with his presence coming on Sinai. So God's saying, I'm coming. If you hear me and follow me, it's a wonderful thing. If not, you're going to be destroyed, just like with the covenant curses. They have trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. 
he has this complete reversal of creation. I'm not going to read it, but chapters, verses 2 and 3, you can see this reversal. It's basically saying, going backwards through creation and saying, because you have chosen to walk away from me, things get reversed in the world. They go back to what they were. But God is not going to leave them there. He says, I will not leave you there. And some of the most beautiful verses, I think, I don't know, every t- whatever, I, whatever I'm reading, I love, but this, this is just powerful stuff. Look at 3 verse 14. It's actually everywhere. We don't read these kinds of verses very often. They're, they're, these are taken straight from Deuteronomy. Again, we don't usually read Deuteronomy. We think that the title is the second law, which is a horrible title for the book because it's not law at all. It's sermons and covenant and instruction. Nothing really having to do with law. Anyway, it's a horrible title for Deuteronomy. In, in Hebrew, the title is, These are the Words. These are the words of God. It's much better. Anyway, but these are all straight out of Deuteronomy. So, sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Again, the day of the Lord, right? He has come. He's there with you. This is also the day of the Lord, the definition of it. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, don't fear, don't be afraid. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, he will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Have you ever thought about that? God rejoicing over you? That's what the day of the Lord is about. He wants to come and rejoice over you if you let him. He will quiet you with his love, back to that silent thing. He will rejoice over you with singing. So God sings over us. That's his desire. He's wanting to come with joy, with singing over us. And we're just like, ah, ah, you're going to kill us and zap us, right? It's because we don't get, I don't think, at least that's been my experience, is when I was feeling that it was because I didn't really get his grace. The law is for the saved, not the other way around. He saves us. And then he gives us the Torah, not the other way around. We've gotten it all wrong, or at least in our minds. At least in my mind, it was wrong. All right. Time flying. Okay. Nahum and Obadiah. I put them together because they are really um, polemics. What's a polemic? Argument against something done in a maybe kind of atypical way. So it's almost done in a sideways way. It's not a direct, straight-out thing. They do have some direct, straight-out things, too. But Nahum is, um, has a hymn at the very beginning, kind of this divine warrior hymn that God writes against Nineveh. Okay, so who did we have yesterday who went to Nineveh? Jonah, right? So now Nineveh is completely given to destruction, and they, they've totally turned back on what Jonah taught them, and they're about to be destroyed And Nahum is here to send them their last warning. They don't listen, and they are destroyed in 612 um, B.C. So God here at the very beginning, he tells them straight up. He says, God is jealous in verse 2, and God, the Lord avenges. The Lord is vengeance and furious. He will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. Sorry, that's Nahum 1, 2, and 3. So he's saying straight up, God wants you still to be saved. Still the same message as Jonah, but they don't listen. And instead, they are destroyed. Um, Edom, Obadiah is talking to Edom, 
Same thing. He says, you were relatives of Israel. You should have cared about them when they fell, but instead you mocked them and you laughed at them and you scoffed them and you actually killed some of the stragglers, the remnants, the survivors. Um, so these two prophets are speaking against speaking to nations other than Israel. So I think find it really significant that we, we often forget this, but that's three of the 12 that are really not speaking at all to Israel. And a lot of the prophecies in the major prophets, the bigger books are also not to Israel. So God has a passion for reaching everyone through his prophets, through his spokespeople. Um, so there's a lot of connections. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think this is often misunderstood. How can you have a psalm, which is really what Nahum and a lot of Obadiah are rejoicing against about the destruction of these people? How do we understand that? There's actually a lot of connections with these, of these two psalms with Psalm 137, which is about Babylon. So I want you to turn there with me because I think this is really important. It's called an imprecatory psalm, which is a cursing psalm. This is a psalm you will probably not hear read in church, although I think it should be because I think we misunderstand the point of it. And we cringe at it, and I've actually read, and unfortunately in the textbook I'm required to use for my freshman religion class at Andrews, I, the, the author, I think, is intending well, but they say something about how, you know, these are just human emotions, and so, you know, we can just kind of not worry about them because they're not what God, God feels. And I, I, I actually spend a whole class periods on that, talking with them, because I want them to understand that I don't think that's... I think that's a very scary place to be at. I don't think it's intended by the author, but anyway, they're trying to explain it away, but I, I think we get into trouble when we do that. So um, let's just read it briefly here. By the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137. There we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. So where are they? They're in captivity, right? They're in exile. When we, we hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Ha! We destroyed you. You know, we're going to make fun of you now. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. This is almost a straight similarity with Obadiah here. The day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. Ha! They deserve it. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Whoa! <laughs> right? This is not what you expect to hear. How do we understand this? And again, you can see why people just take this one verse and say, this cannot be a Christian emotion? How can this be in the Bible? And I think we miss some stuff. And I've got some stuff here. I actually wrote it out because I wanted you to see it and have it and remember it. So probation was given to all these people. We don't have to cut time to go back through that. But it, you, if you look through from Genesis all the way to the end of the prophets, it's clear that God gives probation. God gives warnings to all these nations. They don't listen. They don't care. Israel too, right? Israel gets the same thing. Same warning, same probation. They don't care. God, has, God is not a, a favorite player. He doesn't play favorites. He treats everyone equally. He gives probation and they don't listen. 
This is actually lex talionis, which means it is a just punishment for the crime. And, and lex talionis doesn't mean that that punishment has to happen, right? So many times, many times the punishment wouldn't happen if the person repented, but it meant that you wouldn't go above that, what is a just punishment for the crime. Many, many of the other ancient Near East, other nations around Israel, they had horrible things. So like if you stole something, you'd have your hand cut off. If you lied, your tongue was cut off. So um, God is saying, you know, let's be fair and equal. That's what lex talionis is. But it doesn't mean he has to do it. Many times God doesn't. In fact, God is much more gracious always than people are. So we, we, we are quick to judge someone and get rid of them. And, and God says, no, any chance possible that they repent? Yes. Hallelujah. I won't have to do what I, what I need to do. So if you look, let's just look at one of the verses here. 2 Kings 8, 12. So this is describing what was done to nations at that time. So um, Elisha is, is weeping, right? And he's, re he's realizing what is going to happen to Israel. And Hazael said, this is verse 12, Why is my Lord weeping? He said, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So this is what happened to Israel. And Isaiah says the same thing. Babylon does the same thing to them. So this is what happened. So they are not saying, oh, yes, we're going to just rejoice if your kids are killed. No, they're saying, Lord, please, please bring judgment. And I think until, well, I don't know, this was my experience. Until you have someone brutally wrong you, you think, oh, Justice, ah, it's, it's, you know, you know but, but justice longs to be served upon evil. Does that mean that God sends that person to hell forever? No, there's always a chance for their soul. But there are consequences for what we do. And when you have someone wrong you like this, this is the response. They're saying, Lord, please judge. Please bring righteousness back. Please Please answer this horrible atrocity that has happened. These are also covenant curses. Um, so many of the imprecatory psalms, and again, Obadiah, Nahum, full of covenant curses. So once again, this is not just God's covenant with his people, Israel, but with all people, and they would recognize that. There's never any personal vengeance here taken, so they don't take personal vengeance. It's always calling on God to do it never a personal vendetta, never saying, oh, you did this to me, ha, I'm going to go do this to you. No, it's saying, Lord, please judge rightly, bring justice back, righteousness back. And this um, number five there, God's victory is evil's destruction. I think maybe, a, I don't know what a good analogy is for that, but if you are, I use this with my students a lot, so maybe some of you will relate to it. Um, if, you're if you are really wanting your team to win. What are you also wanting for the other team? Them to lose, right? It's automatic. And we don't often think of it that way, but that's the same thing here. Wanting God to win, wanting God's, God's truth to win means wanting evil to lose. And those who are associated with that. So it doesn't mean you hate those people. It just means that you want God to win. And then, of course, lastly there, Jesus takes all of the covenant curses on himself if we are willing. So it's never something that individual people have to endure. If they are willing to accept 
the Savior, it's their Messiah, they don't have to face these things. But unfortunately, most of them were not. Very few ever accept. Um, the punishment fits the crime. We don't have to, time to read this because I want to get to Habakkuk. Um, but because I wanted to spend a couple minutes here, and many struggle with these books because they seem to have similar issues to the Canaanite genocide. So the same idea of God asking his people to kill whole nations. I've already mentioned some of the reasons why I don't think that's an accurate picture, but um, there are a couple more that I think you should know. One of them, I don't believe that God actually intended Israel to kill the Canaanites at all. I think God intended to do it himself. God intended to take care of them. So just look with me one passage quickly. don't have time for more, but uh, maybe whet your appetite about this. Um, Exodus 23. Well, maybe we'll read two. But at least one. So much. All right. So we actually spent a whole day on this issue too. So anyway, we're just giving you, giving you tidbits. So Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, this is God. God's telling them now as they're just about to go into the, um, well, they're not about to go into the promised land. They think they are. Of course, they then disobey him. But this is what he's wanting them to do. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way, to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him. Obey his voice. Do not provoke him. He will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Who is this? Christ. Probably Jesus here, right? So it's, a, it's God himself, and yet he's an angel. And we'll, I, we'll see this when we talk more in um, Zechariah tomorrow. It's even more, more clear. Beware of him. Okay, so 22. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. This is not your job. Your job is not to go and kill them. It's my job. I know their hearts. I know what needs to be done. My angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and you will cut them off? No, I will cut them off. That's my job. Let me do it. So you shall serve, um, sorry, I skipped a verse. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. And this actually goes back to Deuteronomy 7, which I'm not going to read, but you can read it. The beginning of Deuteronomy 7. This is exactly what God says, destroy them. But then in the next verse, he's like, actually, what I mean is to destroy their sacred pillars. Because I don't want you to intermarry with them. I don't want you to make a covenant with them. So they're still there. So what happens? You will serve the Lord and your God, and he will bless you. Your bread and water I will take away sickness, and which will suffer miscarriage, blah, blah, blah. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among the people to whom you come. I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. This is what happens. In fact, if you read the beginning of Joshua 2, when Rahab is telling the spies, they're like, she's like, we're freaked out. We're terrified of you. Everyone's running away. And then in Deuteronomy 10, when Moses is saying you're about to enter the land, he tells them, you know, you're going to have all, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 10, he says, you're going to have all these lands, all these cities. You're going to have houses, which you didn't build, cities, which you didn't build, vineyards and orchards. And why was that happening? Because the people were freaked out and they were running away, right? So most of the people left. There were very few left at that time. And in fact, this is why many Scholars today who don't really want to see the Bible being true, they say, see, there's actually no evidence of Israel conquering Canaan because there's just no evidence of even change in people. There's no cities being burned. There's only actually three, which are the three that the Bible says are burned. Um, so Jericho, Ai, and Hotsor. Ai and Hotsor are ones they weren't supposed to do that to. Anyway, it's just, it's crazy to me how we, we, we misinterpret this whole thing and we say Israel had this huge conquest, destroyed everyone. Well, they did 
do some destruction, but that was not what God wanted them to do. God's purpose was for them to just rest and let him do it. And the few times they had faith, God was able to do that. Jericho, Jehoshaphat, um, a few other places, but not very many. Most of the time they were like, okay, God's given us strength. We're going to go kill them. And God blesses them anyway, but it's not his intent. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite before you. I will not drive them out from you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out for you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So, and he goes on. I mean, it's just, it's just powerful to me. And I think we've often completely misinterpreted this issue. God gave the Canaanites probation, just like he gave Israel. He actually gave the Canaanites the land initially. In Leviticus, he makes it very clear. He's like, the reason I drove out the Canaanites is because they did the same crazy sins that you're starting to do. You know, I gave them the land initially. They messed it up. So I took the land from them. I'm giving it to you. Now you're messing it up. And I'm going to take the land from you and give it to someone else. So God is, is doing the same thing over and over again and, and working with us in, in his kindness. Okay, Habakkuk. How do I pick a favorite book? I still, this one is still probably one of my tops. Um, just because it's been so personally meaningful to me, I have found such hope in this book because he wrestles with God. He asks questions of God. He is confused about what God is doing. And he, he is willing to speak truthfully to God, kind of like Job. He's a mini Job. Well, he's not mini, but the book is mini. But if you read it, it sounds a lot like Job. So he starts off in verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry? You will not hear, even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. And actually, this is the Torah is useless, essentially, in their society. Basically, no one's paying attention to it. It's completely done away with. He's talking about Judah here. He's speaking to Judah, right, again, before they go into captivity. And he's saying... Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. So God's response is, all right, that's fine. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. I'll answer you. I'm going to send Babylon. And Babylon will take care of Judah for you. They'll destroy them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what you need. There's no justice in your land. So I'm going to send Babylon. And that's what he says in verses 5 through 11. God's responding. He's like, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. They're going to come and take care of your issue. And Habakkuk is like, what? This isn't right. How can you send Babylon? They're worse than us. What are you, crazy God? What are you thinking? And he says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you've marked them for correct correction. You are of pure horizon to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Etc., etc., etc. And he finally says, you know, I'm just going to watch and see what you say. Frustrated with you, God. Why are you not answering in the ways that I think you should answer? So God's response is really threefold. And that's in C there, one C on the handout. God's answer, he first starts, well, he first starts with 2 verse 4, but we'll come back to that in a moment. This is actually a chiasm, this whole book. Many of them have been that we've been talking about today. I just haven't focused on it. But the very center of it is 2 verse 4. This is the center focus of this whole book. The proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But he goes on 5 through 20 is this whole woes against the other nations and woes against Babylon. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of them too. 
my, my justice covers everyone. So you don't have to worry about that. And then he gives him, though, this first of all, he gives him this righteousness by faith. And I think we have limited this concept too much. Because what happens is in, in the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, that Paul would have known that as well as the Hebrew, and it says, the just shall live by my faithfulness. God talking. So Paul, I think on purpose, doesn't give a pronoun. Because what does he say when he quotes this always? The just shall live by faith. Right? So whose faith? Both. It's God's faithfulness, because that word faith can be either faith or faithfulness, translated either one. So it's God's faithfulness to us. Our faith in God's faithfulness, I actually think it's threefold, and then that leads to our faithfulness to God. So all of that is encapsulated there in this one phrase, and I think that's why Paul doesn't quote the pronoun, because he's saying, I really think it's all of these things. God is the faithful one to us. The law is for the saved. God saves us for, God is faithful to us. We then have faith in his faithfulness to us, and that's what saves us as well. And then that results in our good works. It results in our faithfulness back to him. So all of those are there. If you look for fun, if you have time at some point, go look through all the passages in Paul that he talks about righteousness by faith. And I think you'll find all three of those elements there in all of them. It's always God who first loved us, who first saved us. And then we respond in faith to him. And then that leads to good works. Not because we have to do them, but because we want to do them, because we're in love with him, because we're just blown away by what he has done for us. So it's all three of those elements. And this is what gives Habakkuk hope. So God, but God doesn't stop there. He comes to Habakkuk in a theophany. So chapter three is just God appearing to him. And it's also a hymn and it's a song. And he's bringing together all of the elements. If you want to have some fun for your worship sometime, go through Habakkuk three. I have my students do this and look for all the elements that apply to these different things of God's faithfulness to us. Creation, flood, Exodus, Sinai, a bunch of different Psalms. He's weaving it all together in amazing ways. He pulls it all together and says, God is amazing. He's done all this stuff for us. And so, therefore, I can trust him. He also completely reverses. There's about 10 or 12 things that he said in chapter 1. He's upset with God. He's like, you're not saving. You're not hearing. You're not listening. You're not caring. And in chapter 3, he's like, wow, God saves. God listens. God cares. God hears. I get it finally. And does he get it because God has done all those things yet? No. He gets it because he he gets righteousness by faith. That's my sense. He, he finally gets the picture that he can trust God. And his final response is so powerful to me because it, it's this, he's frustrated with God. He's impatient with God. He's like, you don't care. You don't listen. And it turns into this amazing statement of faith that, that convicts me every time I read it because I'm blown away by it. Three, the end of chapter three, starting in verse 16. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. So he's just broken. He realizes what God has done and what will God will do. And then he says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, we read this and we're like, okay, that's terrible. But this was everything. This is like losing your house and your car and all your savings and all your retirement and all your clothes and all your friends and, and everything. It's all gone. 
all of that, if all of that was gone, if God didn't answer any of my prayers the way I think he should answer them, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in my circumstances. I think we often get this mixed up and we think, I need to just be happy that all these terrible things have happened to me. No, why are we happy? Not because of the terrible things. We're happy because those terrible things point us to Jesus. And they say, Lord, you are, you, you are the one who gives me joy. And I think joy, joy transcends happiness. It's like a deeper and higher and broader than, than happiness is. It, of course, incorporates that, but it's much bigger. I will joy in the God, not just the God of Israel, the God of my salvation. I know God saves me, and therefore I can rejoice. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. So he starts off being angry with God for the state of the world and all the problems that are in it in the state of his church and the state of his country. And he's like, this is a mess, Lord. What are you doing? And he ends up by saying, I don't know what you're doing, Lord, but I trust you because I know you've saved me and you're in my heart and that's enough for me. And I can trust that you're going to do well with everything else. I want to end with... Um, Reading, um, this is from Prophets and Kings, page 386. I don't have it on there. I probably should have put it on there, but it's running out of room. And this says, she says, the faith, Prophets and Kings 386. The faith that strengthened Habakkuk and all the holy and just in those days of deep trial was the same faith that sustains God's people today. It's no different. In the darkest hours, under circumstances most forbidding, the Christian believer may keep his soul stayed upon the source of all light and power. Day by day, through faith in God, his hope and courage may be renewed. The just shall live by his faith. Notice she doesn't really qualify that either. Whose is it? All of them. In the service of God, there need be no despondency, no wavering, no fear. The Lord will more than fulfill the highest expectations of those who put their trust in him. He will give them the wisdom their varied necessities demand. Just powerful to me, the faith that Habakkuk had, and it's a personal faith, and many of the other prophets don't get down to that personal stuff. That's why I wanted to end with him today, because that faith is what enables us to, I think, read the prophets well. Because if we really get God's grace and salvation, we can read them with the perspective of that, and which is, I think, the way God was speaking then. So hold on to that in your hearts. Let God's grace fill you, especially today. So blessings to you. Let's, let's close with prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can rejoice in you, that your joy transcends the many crazy circumstances and difficult circumstances that we probably are all facing right now. Lord, help us to hold on to you like Habakkuk did and trust you, your grace, your salvation, your hope, and to, to spread that hope to others, Lord. Thank you so much. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.